Leading LDS is a nonprofit organization dedicated to enhancing leadership ability and capacity of lay leaders in order to accelerate the mission of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Leading LDS is not owned nor operated by the LDS Church, and any opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of any specific organization. All donations given to Leading LDS are tax-deductible and go towards the support of Leading LDS. For more information, visit LeadingLDS.org. Today we sit down with Dan Conway, who is a bishop in England. In the interview, we not only discuss how he leads as a bishop, but also his journey through a personal faith crisis, where his shelf of belief tumbled down and how he pieced it back together with the help of others. Soon after he found solid footing in the gospel, he was called to serve as bishop of his ward. A big thank you for Arthur Bhutan for recommending that we talk with Dan. It turned out great. Now, before we jump into that interview, I want to request that you jump over to leadinglds.org and check out our most recent webinar with Dustin Peterson. I received nothing but incredible feedback for this webinar. Some even called it the best one yet. And you can watch it for free for a few more days at leadinglds.org on the homepage. To get full access to the webinar, you can find it in our core leader library by becoming a core leader. We generally request that you contribute $10 a month to be a core leader, but if you can only afford a dollar a month or $12 a year, that would get you access as well. We truly need your help to extend the reach and influence of Leading LDS, so go to Leading LDS and contribute today. And now, here is my interview with Dan Conway. Today, we're headed over to United Kingdom to talk with Dan Conway. How are you, Dan? Yeah, doing really good. Kids are in bed and it's, you know, so I'm just, that's the happy part of my day. Nice. Yeah, it's uh, just past, uh, it's about one forty for me and you said it's 8.40 in the evening for you, right? Yeah. Nice. Well, uh, I hope today works out as well as uh, it, it worked out for you. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now, where are you exactly located? So I'm in Newcastle, so I'm like right in the northeast of England. We're about probably an hour or so from the Scottish border. Wow. And uh, Scotland's where you served your mission, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so what's the uh, what's the drive to the nearest temple look like? Uh, it's about a three hour drive. The actual drive is beautiful actually, because if you go through across um, to Carlisle and down, you, you get it's a really beautiful country drive. And Preston Temple is our nearest temple. Wow. And so do you uh, typically organize temple trips? Uh, yeah. With the, with the ward to do that. Yeah, so we roughly have about three, we organize about three planned temple trips as a ward each year and we hire like a coach and we'll go as a ward and make an effort. And obviously people go by themselves at different times, but we always have about at least two or three coach visits. Nice. Well, and we were uh, connected by one of your, was he a mission companion? Is that right? Uh, not a companion, but like a mission, mission server, if you mean served in... Mission so, buddy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Cool, Arthur Boutin. I don't. I always say his last name wrong, and he's probably shaking his. Boutin. Boutin. Right. Boutin. <laughs> I'm just a naive, ignorant American. He's. But uh, Arthur's actually been on the podcast with his bishopric. They up in uh, Calgary. They they talked to us about some things they're doing up there with a with a young bishopric, and encourage the listeners to check that out. I'll link to it in the show notes. But uh, mission buddy, and and as I am always looking for international leaders to talk to, he said, "Oh." You've got to talk to Dan. He's a bishop in uh, Newcastle. And what is your is it the Newcastle ward? Um, or? Uh, we're next over some North Shields. So North we're Shields. right on the beach on the coast. Oh, man. I got to come visit. I hope you have like an extra bedroom. It's I'm really, yeah, it's <laughs> a really nice sandy beach. The northeast is lovely sandy beaches, actually. Cold, freezing water, but beautiful beaches. <laughs> yeah. You don't, uh, you don't go to, to England for the beaches, right? I mean, <laughs> other than to look at them, not to, not to swim anyways. Not really, yeah. That's awesome. So tell me about you, Dad, as far as your, what is it you do for, for work? So I work as like a digital marketing um, executive for a company, like a holiday company that sell like um, UK holidays. So mainly like caravan holidays and glamping holidays. Nice. And when you say holiday in American, you mean vacation, right? <laughs> yeah. And over right. here, like it's a big, because uh, obviously for different reasons, they call it a staycation. So uh-huh. Where upstate encourage people to stay and have holidays along the basically all the different parks across the coasts of all the UK. Oh, nice, nice. So tell me, just put you and your faith into perspective a little bit. Uh, your upbringing, obviously international. We can't always assume that you were you were born in the church, but uh, are you a convert? And how would you describe the development of your testimony? 
I would say, so I've always been a member my whole life. My parents were converts in their mid to late 20s. And uh, I was born a member of the church with my three brothers. And we were raised up in mainly the farm, Bracknell Ward and Farmer Ward. It's in the Red Mistake in the southeast of England. And typically like, always active, served the mission at 19. That was the age then and went to Scotland um, I've been a you know regular temple attender and a generally active member. Got you know married in the temple at 24 and served in young men's elders quorum, stake young men's, and now bishop. Yeah, and uh, so when you went to Scotland, they have a, a completely different type of accent. Yeah, there's a lot more. It's yes, yeah, like, I'd call it a harsh, kind of a quite aggressive in different parts. But yeah, but you know, great people. Yeah, for sure. Did the uh, did you pick up any of that as you? Uh... When he came you, home, you, I think you always do. You always catch a few of the different slang and different terms <laughs> and different words and phrases. But they, you know, the food over there's like it's pretty crazy. They love like haggis and anything that can be fried, fried pizza, fried battered Mars bar, anything you can get fried in the chip shop. Nice. So now that you don't live too far from Scotland. So when you got your mission call, was it like a Utah getting a mission call to Idaho? Like, were you yeah, disappointed? <laughs> effectively, I don't think it's the same for everyone, but for most. Probably about ninety percent of people in in England or UK get called to a UK mission. You have about five minutes of disappointment. Oh yeah, then, so <laughs> so it wasn't a shocker by any means. No, like uh, like I was I was I was upset and gutted, but then you know after about five minutes, got excited and you know and you end up having a great time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But nonetheless, I imagine you enjoyed your time there, and it was a growing experience. What what can you tell us about uh, the church in Scotland? Does how does it differ than in? Uh, in I'd say England. Yeah, no, like it. So for England, a lot of the the stronger parts, there's different. There's various parts. Like so, the temple around the the Preston Temple is like strong for the church in the Manchester area, and then then in the England in the south, where the southeast, where like a lot around Great London and Greater London, where there's a lot of work, a lot higher population, there's bigger that you know stronger stakes, but. Um, the northeast of England is probably similar to Scotland, where like the stakes are generally small and the wards aren't massive. But when I was there, the Dundee, like kind of certain Dundee stake, was like a really strong stake. It had really good size wards. Hmm. But there's about I think I can't remember that maybe three, three or four stakes. There's not too many. Where in England you've got about uh, maybe just under thirty or around thirty. Nice. And they uh, so are they. Do you get the sense they're on the cusp of getting a temple? I don't. They don't have a temple. No, right no, now. no. You still got a ways I to go. I can't imagine it happening for some time. Well, miracles happen, right? Yeah. <laughs> nice. So you you uh, grow up pretty a uh, pretty typical traditional Orthodox family. Uh, jump through all the hoops, go on a mission, come home, get married, and uh, and now you are serving as as a bishop in Newcastle, and uh, and you're 32 years old. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So is that uh I don't know for Utah, you know, I served when I was 28 and that was uh typical not typical. I mean that's a, a younger age for you know with so many uh such a, a high density area of, of LDS people. Is that uh is that typical yeah. to, to be called as bishop in your early 30s? I wouldn't uh I'd would say I wouldn't say necessarily typical like you know if there's been younger, there's been older. I'd say it's most of them are probably mid thirties, forties, but yeah, it's probably not typical, typical, but you know, some do. That's great. So tell us about, you sort of went through what you would describe as a faith crisis in your, in your twenties after you, uh, I assume this is the time after you were married in the temple. And this is becoming, uh, as we talked about before we record more and more common among us millennials, right. That are sort of in that, the twenties and thirties and obviously, it's a different world. And so, I think you'll bring an interesting perspective to this. But how did that originally unfold and kind of tell us the process of that? So, for me, it was about uh, 2013. And I think it was the back end of 2013, thereabouts. And I just, it was around the time in the UK, there was a big like PR event about you know, the church. Well, you know, the church get faced with like lawsuits on a regular basis, you know, strange ones and different times. And President Monson was getting sued for the church was being sued. I think it was President Monson was having to possibly come to court in England oh, yeah. about members paying that. tithing. It was a really some member was suing about tithing, some like ex member. And I remember like there was a lot of kind of different like, material going on online on different uh, blogs and websites. And I just kind of started kind of reading into it and just 
from there, I started getting quite a lot into Mormon stories and getting into various kind of different websites that were challenging like the church and its beliefs. Not necessarily the kind of like, it didn't come across as like, you know, I think when you grow up, you think you have this perception that any material is like this evil thing, but it wasn't quite like that. It was like people who generally had maybe genuine concerns and they were just, you know, they were kind of challenged in these different kind of sites. I started kind of reading a lot of them and they were challenged to various, various parts of the church and its beliefs. And it just, I think it just, um, gradually I started to really question every, like a lot of things, especially about church history and events that had gone on. And like, you know, just typically about like blacks and the priesthood, you know, book of Abraham, Joseph Smith, you know, his wives and mistakes and different things. And things that Brigham Young has said, you know, various things. And it just kind of led from there where I was kind of reading more and more and got really consumed by it all. Yeah. And I really started to doubt my testimony. Yeah. And as you went through this process, did you find that, you know, it was in the news, you said it was in, a lot of this was happening in the news, uh, you know, with lawsuits and things. And so that sort of uh, in, created some curiosity to look deeper into what yeah. was happening. Yeah. So like part of me was like, what is this, you know, trying, like I said, trying to get to the bottom of what is this, who's this guy or who, why are they suing the church about tithing? And that was kind of initially when I read into it, I was like, this is, that one like, didn't, like, I was particularly, like, I wasn't bothered about, like it didn't really affect me. I thought it was a bit silly. Um, but then I just kind of started, I think it was always Mormon think or something, it was something like that. And I just started kind of reading more and more about, you know, people who had left the church or people who were struggling and, and the different challenges and, you know, people, and it just kind of, I just started to read into it, you know, and I probably would say I was quite typical where I was naive to a lot of the stuff where I probably growing up in the church, I should have made more of an effort and been more aware of my history and exactly what went on and what didn't. And so I think some of it caught me off guard, caught me a bit by surprise. And there was some, uh, some quite good evidence challenging like different parts of, you know, where the church had, you know, maybe made some mistakes or weren't quite right. And, leaders had said things and it really started to make me kind of to doubt and to worry. Yeah. And what were the, some of the, uh, the big feelings and emotions you were experiencing? I know a lot of people describe it as betrayal and, you know. Yeah. I think there is a part of that. I think, I don't know, at the time maybe I felt it was betrayal. Now I think the church have always, you know, been good at like, um, PR. And I think nowadays with PR, you have to be a lot more honest where, you know, you, public relations back in the day you could sweep things under the carpet and move a bit of time be forgotten but because of the age of information where everything's accessible on the internet you can't just sweep things under the carpet you know information is there then can't be hidden anymore and i just remember like kind of you know finding like various blogs and people to present an argument about certain parts whether it be you know joe smith and his wives and marrying a 14 year old and why he did it and you know the book of abraham was it a funeral text and just different things but they presented pretty challenging arguments some of it sometimes taken out of context and it really started to make me i was starting to really get upset and question like suddenly for the first time i was like is it possible that the church isn't true and you know i've got this wrong Mm. and that really started to worry me and like kind of upset me because i've got this temple marriage a wife that's very active and we were active all my family, my in-laws, my parents, my my brothers, most of them were active, and and all this started to weigh on me. Like, what you know, what if this isn't right? And you know, and I was really struggling with that. Yeah. And before I ask this question, I need to preface it that uh, I know that a lot of people, uh, Orthodox members, will say, "Oh, well, you know, you're having these doubts because maybe you weren't reading your scriptures enough, and you really forgot those things." But I guess what I want to ask is, how does as you were going through this journey of discovery of, of really questioning some of your, your core beliefs in the church, how did it impact your, your personal study? And again, I'm not asking because that's the, yeah. the reason, but mainly just how did you, did you attempt yeah. to create a balance there? Yeah. To be honest, I think that, that was, I was probably typical where you, once you start to get consumed in it, like you start to, you start to really get into it. And that's all up for me. That was all I read. I just wanted more and more, the people who were challenging the church and its beliefs and like it, it really got into my system and when people say well you need to read scriptures and you or you need to start reading the book of Mormon, you need to start praying and that that's the last thing and anyone out there who's maybe dealing with this in any way as a leader or a family member 
the last thing you want to say to someone is, you know, you need to read the Book of Mormon. When someone's like having serious doubts and not even sure if it's true and starting to think, like, is this like written made up by people? The last thing you want to be told is to read it and to pray about it. Just that's not how it like that wouldn't didn't work for me. Yeah. And why would you say that? Just because, I mean, obviously every leader hopes the individual is, is turning to the scriptures, but you're, you're saying that as far as like, that's the solution, just do that and it'll all be fixed. Yeah. Right? So that like, isn't like where exactly, I think people would say, this is the solution. This is the only solution. And really there's, there's other ways. And for me, what helped me was uh, people talk to me and help me answer my questions rather than just brushing off the questions I had as anti-literature, but asked me what the questions I actually had, what I specifically was struggling with. They were, they were split into two camps, people who would get defensive and tell me to read and pray more, where some people who, were, who understood that that's, that's not really necessarily the best route, but to uh, yeah, sit with me, ask me for my questions and to see if they could help me. Yeah, so they, they approached it a little, with a little more empathy, right? To yeah. really wanting to understand what you're wrestling with. Yeah, and... Again, some people would get defensive and were, would get really upset and funny where others would, would accept that like I was really struggling. But for me, it was a genuine, genuine concern and worry. And they, were, they weren't harsh or said harsh things. But my bishop at the time, like he was really, really cool about it. Like he said, okay. And he wasn't forceful or hot. He was just like really kind and really nice about it. You know I mean, and was really patient with me and didn't pressure me in any way. And I liked that. And I had like, you know, friends and family who, particularly a family member who said, you know, I remember one of my dad and one of my brothers was like, they're upset and they were defensive. We're trying to give me some strange advice. When one of my brothers said, look, you know, let's sit down. Let's show me exactly the questions that you're struggling with most. And let's just try and like look at them. Yeah. And did it take a while before you could really, you really felt comfortable being open with uh, friends, family and leaders uh, with some of your... Yeah. I don't know how it is for everyone else, but I'm guessing most people are similar to a point. Everyone, obviously, everyone's slightly different. But for me, I was struggling silently for a number of months where I was reading, gradually, gradually got consumed into it more and more to the point where I was having serious doubts. And I wasn't, I was really questioning the church and its truthfulness, the Book of Mormon, the, you know, the prophets, the leaders, the organization, the you know, finances. And, and I think uh, I just, it, for me, like it just kind of that's how it kind of gradually went, and I and it was just gradually and eventually after a number of months when I was really having such serious doubts, I then confided in my wife and said, "Look, this is how I'm feeling. I'm I'm really struggling. I've got some concerns." And then I confided in some my close family and my leader, and I'd I'd recommend that to anyone that's listening because I know lots of people sometimes they struggle silently for months and then just decide they're cutting off and. They don't want any explanation. They don't want anyone to talk to them. They don't want anyone to help deal with it. They've made the decision. That's it. But for me, I kept going to church, attending. I saw really good things about the church. I loved about my children being there. And it was just, I think that would help me being open. Yeah. And I, I mean, sure, there's pressure that builds. As you keep this inside and don't talk to anybody, pressure's building and building and either going to talk about somebody or, you know, it's just unhealthy, yeah. right? Yeah, because at the time I was... Um, in elders quorum in fact as i was like going through the, the middle and the peak of my struggle i was called as elders quorum president and like i, I remember the interview i didn't say anything at the time to state president um but i was desperate to kind of and i was like literally almost part of me was ready to reject it really close to doing it and uh, it would, that's it like i was just kind of feeling i had just serious doubts i wasn't you know here i am being called as elders quorum president to teach most weeks or, you know, to teach regularly and to help people, you know, come unto Christ and be a member of the church. Now I am struggling thinking, do I even want to be a member of this church? Do I even believe the things? And so that was, there yeah, was a pressure. And, and, you know, to, to my core members, I, I had to kind of, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't telling them, I was telling certain people. So it was, that pressure was difficult. So how, when you were extended the call as Elder Corn president, uh, how did you say yes when you're in the midst of these doubts? Uh, what? Literally, I was screaming inside saying no. And then I just couldn't bring myself at the time to say no to the state president. I didn't also want to get involved at that point. I had certain leaders and friends and family. And for me, I didn't want to make an even bigger deal of it. So I accepted the calling. And again, I hadn't quit church. I was still attending. I was still going. And I was still open. 
I hadn't closed off completely for church. I hadn't said, right, I made my mind up, but I was having serious doubts and I was worried I wasn't ever, I was worried that the church wasn't going to be true and that it was all, for me, wasn't going to be right. And I was worried for that, but I kept going in hope. There was part of me that still hoped it was right. And so you uh, you just said yes because you couldn't bring yourself to say no and move on with this calling. How long were you elders corn president? Uh, I'm trying to think. Two, five, probably uh, 2013, thereabouts. 2000. So probably, I'm trying to think what that would be, so until about a year ago. So a good three or three and a half, I don't know, three years. I don't know, maybe longer. I don't, I'm not sure. I'm trying to figure the, the dates in my head. And so... During this time, you sort of had a, a rebound of, of faith as you served as Elder Scrum President? Yes. Yeah, so I continued to serve, was struggling, but still teaching, still trying and to continue. You know, I hadn't made a final decision. I hadn't decided, like, that's it. It's not true. I was having serious doubts. And I, I was more on the side where I was, I was starting to be convinced that it wasn't right. Maybe the church wasn't right. These things weren't true. You know, it was a great organization, lots of good things, but... When on the on the balance of things it wasn't right and that was, was had me seriously worried but what really helped me like I said was having leaders and I, um, particularly someone was helping me answer my questions so I took my questions to them and they helped me get some serious answers and it helped for me to have you know you can't answer every question but I've got some really good explanations for the struggle the questions I had struggles with and for me I had for you know about the book of Abraham you know the priesthood and race Joseph Smith's wives and and various, top, various other topics, and I managed to gradually get answers for most of them. And some of them were like answers where, like, in hindsight, I've been looking at too much of, you know, one argument against the church, but not looking for, and there was, like, some good evidence for, and it was just kind of, like I said, having a bit of the balance and just seeing where things had been taken out of context. It was, I was surprised how common that was. Hmm. But also sometimes where, you know, hands up the church leaders and stuff had made mistakes, and there wasn't an answer for it. And that helped. But for me, ultimately, that helped and that helped kind of make me feel a bit better, but it didn't still solve my problem. But what changed me a lot and probably was the game changer for me is having when some of my serious friends and leaders were helping me. They shared some really incredible personal experiences. And I knew these people when they shared some of the most, some of them had seen visions, some of them had seen angels, some of them just, just shared with me some of the most incredible stories. And these were good people I knew wouldn't lie and I, I, I believed it and I felt an incredible spirit when they would share it and that really helped me start going back in the right direction. Nice. So, And I kind of want to ask you more detailed as far as you said you had people you know, helping you with finding solutions, faith building solutions yeah. to some of your, your or faith building information to some of your uh, questions. What did that look like? I mean, did you have a set appointment? I mean, at this point your, your bishop was aware of it. Uh, did you have like yeah. friends or somebody you met with regularly or that you had a, a, yeah. you know, a set appointment that you'd always meet and talk about this or how did that uh, look like it'd be more in the form of like it wouldn't so i had like a friend who wouldn't necessarily be set appointments but we were good enough friends where we'd arrange to meet or we'd arrange to talk and you know he said like one day we went out for like a ride on the bike and we would talk you know we'd kind of walk and talk have a ride stop and kind of took just on a personal where it was more informal um, but looking after me, looking out for me, and my concerns. My bishop, like he was really kind about all, but struggled with kind of answering the questions. Where other, you know, uh, leaders kind of who were a bit more kind of they more aware of the history and the issues, and had done, you know, maybe done their homework in the past, and they, you know, it was more kind of those appointments kind of talking. And it was good because they would show me like. Where they, maybe they had struggles with themselves, and I think they maybe they had you know prior you know years prior, but they would show me sources and talk to me about them, and and that would when I saw like like official church sources and showing things that really answered the kind of some of the issues I had, and like it really helped. Yeah, and I would imagine. I mean, at no point did you uh, you know did you find every perfect answer to a lot of these questions? I mean, you just sort of created a new perspective and context to look at look at it all right yeah so like i was in a really bad place where like you know i, I really was i was starting to lean more towards that the church wasn't right and i was starting heading that way i'm certain that that's the way it was going to end the way things were going then i started to meet with some of the like um, these leaders who looked out for me and started to take the time there were two main people who like kind of helped me through questions 
And then in different times, like I said, they would share experiences and, and other people who became aware of my struggle and they would talk, you know, one shared a, you know, kind of vision he'd had. And these are people I know and trust who were good, honest people that would have no need to lie. There was no benefit of them. Like, and I knew I was going through all these doubts and they would share these experiences. And one shared experience, like I saw this, he saw an angel in the temple and it was just like this really, these incredible experiences. And yeah. I just felt, an inc- I just, like the only way to describe it was like, I'm having all these doubts and these people shit, and they help me answer these questions and that's helping rationalize and helping me feel a bit better. But then they shared these spiritual experiences and I'm like, you know, at this point I'm like fighting the whole spiritual side, but I couldn't deny how I felt. And it, I just felt an incredible witness to my heart when they would share these really sacred experiences. And it just, it was so comforting at the time, lean, almost kind of leaning on someone else's testimony. Yeah. Um, but you needed that then, for a while, right? Yeah. But then came like a point for me where, so I, I, in a sense, I could maybe have been leaning on other people's testimony. So I started to head back. I felt like, no, I know these people are telling the truth. I know these experiences are real. I just can feel of it. I know these people would, you know, are telling the absolute truth. I just know they are. And so I started to continue to do the right things. And I felt better about it. And two things happened that were like key for me. So I started to feel better. And I went to the temple and we went for a week. And my family and I went for a week with the kids. And I had this strain, this amazing gradual experience where I just had this, it was like, again, like you mean, I was this person having doubts, but starting to mend a bit. And I'm in the temple and, and they, we talk about this still small voice. And for me, that's exactly what it was. Just this still small voice, like kind of reassuring, almost just whispering on a regular basis that week that this is right. This is true. And it like almost kind of melted a bit of like the kind of doubts I was having. But yeah, that temple week felt great and I was heading towards a better direction. But for me, like a pinnacle point was I was teaching Elders Quorum. At this point, I wanted, I felt like things were going the right direction. I felt like I was starting to believe the church was true, but I wasn't 100% there. I wasn't still certain. I was still kind of struggling somewhat. And I was teaching a lesson and we had a missionary that was struggling. I knew he was struggling with church and struggling with testimony. and. I felt like I should share my experience of how like I'd had like a witness of Joseph Smith as a prophet um, when I was a missionary. And it's funny because even I was still like not particularly 100% there or, you know, being an active member of Healed. But then as I started to share the experience, I had just like an incredible, one of the most incredible witnesses in my life where it just, it all just melted away every fear I had. It was just a witness that it was all right. It was all true. And that was like a, the massive turning point for me. Yeah. Wow, that's beautiful. And that's interesting because you said you you wanted to share a an experience with that missionary about a witness you had from from your mission about Joseph Smith, right? But in the yeah. moment of sharing that, you were sort of doubting that same witness. Yeah, it was more like that because I liked. I remember he was a nice lad, and I remember thinking, like, having just like kind of that you know that compassion. That I was I was concerned. It's like. I knew like he was worried and I thought, you know, I know this shit, this story, this experience that I had when I was in a similar situation might help him. But then in the back of my mind thinking, I'm not even certain of you myself, you know what I mean? I felt, you know, time and place, I just felt like, you know, I'll share it. And as I shared it, you know, it was almost like I was just this, to anyone that would be listening to this, you know, this podcast and that is a struggling or isn't a member of like, think, yeah, that's what you're saying that. Yeah, you, know, you feel like it's true, but what about it? But like, I can't describe it. I'm like, words can't describe it, but I knew so clearly and felt mind and heart above all doubt I'd ever had that it, this was true and it was right. And it was just like, just melted every doubt I had. Yeah, I love that. And, and the reason I love how you're articulating that, you know, you, you kind of mentioned it, it just doesn't have words. You know, it's amazing to me how powerful that witness can be when it's not explained in the same cliches that we hear you know, from the pulpit at times, you know, that it really, yeah. and so I appreciate you articulating that in, in a different way. So looking back on that, so that sort of, that was uh, when you're elders quorum president and did you go from elders quorum president to bishop? Is that right? Yeah. And so as you look back on, on that experience of kind of going through that faith crisis and, and, you know, it's hard to use that term just because it seems like, oh, well that's fixed now. You'll never have to worry about that. I mean, obviously it's an ongoing <laughs> journey of discovery and questions and development, right? 
But as you look back, what did you now sitting in the in the chair of the bishop? What did you learn about that experience that uh, you now approach the development of testimony or doubt differently? It's totally been a blessing in a sense. Like I regret now in some ways that what I experienced and what I put my wife and family through. My wife it was a real struggle for her for a number of months, and and I regret that. But now I look at the positive is that that experience has been very beneficial, not only for me, but for, you know, as a bishop, I, you know, I do have members of the congregation that are having their own faith crisis. And it has helped because it's, it's a bit where like I know how they feel and I know everyone's faith crisis is slightly different, but a lot of it now, most are to do with church history. And I've been there in a sense and I know how it felt. And I know that just tell them to be like we said, like to read for me, to read the scriptures and pray more doesn't didn't cut it for me and I imagine for them it doesn't cut it for them so we discuss it and I explain what helped me and that has helped that has helped massively and I think as well when I got called as bishop I had like another experience that I kind of really kind of you know gradually I've had more experiences you know several like key witnesses and that have made me even more you know more never know the church is true. Like I know more so now than never have. Like I look back now and I see the person that I was starting to become. My morals started to was starting to change the way I looked at things. And I didn't like the person I was becoming then, but now I look back and I can see how I was starting to become quite a selfish person without realizing. And but for me, like I said, a key witness was getting called as bishop. By this point, like I gradually, you know, I knew, you know, I knew for certain that church was true. And I had like, it's weird because when you're going through a faith crisis, you doubt a lot of your experiences you had previously. And as I was basically just maybe six months before I was called as bishop, I had this really strange dream. And in the dream, like we were, like we were in a, we were in like a church building and there was a feeling of excitement across the people there, the ward. And I just had this overwhelming feeling that it was going to be me as bishop. It was this really overwhelming, sweet feeling that you know that I wasn't called as bishop. Now I remember, you know, finishing like waking up and thinking that was really bizarre. And I think I remember thinking I'm not going to say this to anyone. I thought, and part of me was thinking, you know, Dan, this is you just weird thinking, dreaming about that kind of stuff. And I didn't ever think, oh, this is going to mean I'm bishop. But it reminded me because about prior to that, prior to my faith crisis, I had a a similar dream where I was being interviewed by our state president to be called as bishop. And again, I never told anyone about these dreams because, you know, I didn't want to expect it and didn't want it. Yeah. And then like six months after the kind of the last dream, I got called as bishop. And again, it was kind of like just another witness to me. And interestingly, when I got called in the morning of the day I got called as bishop, my first counsellor, he got up and, you know, as typically you do when you, a new bishop is called, they ask you to share your testimony. My first counselor got up to share his testimony. And he's not the type of guy to share, like, experiences. And he's quite like a reserved guy. And there are some people who share their experiences constantly, like, man, please stop it. <laughs> yeah. The people who share their most sacred experiences every week in, <laughs> in the sacrament meeting. But he got up and he said, no, like, I feel I need to share an experience that happened. I have to try and control it because... I can feel it now as I talk about it. But he got up and he said, I had a dream last night. And all he knew at this point was he had an interview with the state president on Sunday morning. And he didn't know what for. And so and let me just make sure I, I follow. So this is this was the sacred meeting in which you were sustained as bishop? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I just remember me. Yeah. So, and he got up and he said, look. I had a dream last night. He said, I woke up at three o'clock in the morning. He said, bizarrely, like I looked and the clock was there exactly three o'clock. He said, in this dream, he said, I had a dream that I was going to get called as first counsellor in the bishopric, in this new bishopric. And he said, and I shared this with the stake president this morning in our meeting. And the stake president said at this point, hadn't told me who the bishop was going to be. And so he said, look, you know, Keith, if you don't mind me asking, can you tell me who that state, you know, the bishop was in your dream that you're going to be called as a first counsellor? And he said, you know, it's, it's Dan Conway. And the state president this time, you know, confirmed that that was true and that, that was who was going to be called today. And for me, 
it was just a further witness. And for me, I'm sure it would be helpful as I serve, serve as bishop to remember that, I, you know, hopefully I am called of God. But for me, it was another witness that, you know, as crazy as and we all go through these faith crises and it was real as anything when I went through it, but no more so than ever that, you know, that it's true, you know, and that, you know, God works in amazing ways. Wow. That's, that's great. And what a tender mercy for you to just uh, have another witness of not just your call, but uh, the confidence that the, that the Lord had in you in, in serving in that capacity. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Anything goes, as far as the, you know, your, the, the years of your faith crisis, any, anything else point or perspective that we didn't cover that uh, we need to mention before we move on? I think there's, there's several sources that I think people should be aware of. And I think the main one is like, um, fair Mormon and quite a lot of people be aware of it. Some won't. I'm surprised to this day when I, when I council members, like how like a lot of them don't know fair Mormon and although not officially sponsored by church, there are some really good people who run it. Some, you know, some really great members and they have some people who made some really good, you know, found some really good answers to some of the struggling questions that people going for faith crosses are. And it was like a real good database of kind of, you know, they don't, they, and they freely admit they don't have answers to everything and they're trying continually to grow that and try and find more information. But they offer logical, rational answers, not the spiritual go pray, read more, but they'll give you, you know, what you want most is when you're going for that crisis is to have some logical understanding of why, what some answers to it. And they provide quite a decent amount of answers to some difficult questions. Now, as far as you're called a bishop, is there, I mean, it's incredible. Some of those dreams and uh, such, I know that uh, I ha- I didn't have any dreams and it uh, sort of hit me out of a blind side of me a little bit, but uh, <laughs> you know, not that every bishop is going to, it should expect those types of dreams, but nonetheless, when they happen, it's such a, a faith affirming, uh, you know, story to listen to. Um, so w- when you, uh, you were serving as elder scorn president and just got a call from the stake president, what, what do you remember as far as that experience of receiving that call? Um, as to, to serve as bishop um to when, when i got the call to when he went to interview and to extend the call as bishop right know. yes so yeah like again he, i got a, a voicemail from like his uh i think it's his ex set saying look and um, the bishop would like to meet with you and your wife and at that point when i was thinking about it, it was just I probably I sensed I I felt it was I knew what it was going to be because I know what for one they only really interview you and your wife when it's like a significant like you know calling like bishop and I knew and obviously at this point I thought okay now this dream might be real maybe there was some meaning behind it but again I didn't I didn't say anything to my wife because I last thing I wanted to do was like that hey you know I had this dream you think it's going to happen and we had a suspect because our bishop had been serving quite a while. He'd been serving about nearly nine years. So we knew before, you know, it called to meet with my wife. You know, this, you know, St. Brennan wants to meet um, me and my wife. And we just kind of had a suspect that could be it. But didn't want to say for certain. And when I met, he obviously was aware of my struggles, you know, what went on. But he was, it was a really interesting, again, like really interesting meeting. And it was really spiritual. And it was, he came to our home and spent time talking, spoke with my wife first and spoke with me. And it was a really, like, really uh, nice experience. Yeah. I don't know if that's necessarily answering no, the question for that. How, how would you, what were you kind of asking? No, that's I'll exactly. Answer that better if you uh, want. I'm just curious about that, that exchange and how it was set up. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, you mentioned your stake president, uh, it was aware of some of your past struggles. Uh, did it, did you feel like you had to, uh, reaffirm your beliefs in that moment or was there any, um, cause I'm, I'm just thinking of those leaders out there that, you know, there's someone that who seems like they could serve as a, a bishop that confirmation is there, but they also, you know, if somebody's really struggling with, with some, uh, some doctrinal or historical doubts, you know, maybe it's best to let them unwind those. So did you feel like he had, he, you had to reaffirm, uh, where you stood w- with your testimony? <laughs> And uh, he was really good. I didn't for him actually. Um, like he was, he was really good about. It. I think you know my bishop would be, you know update him on a regular basis. And then what happened? We'd had like some we'd had like some success in our was quorum, and this like seen some really good kind of 
um, you know, some some good growth in it. And I think he saw it positively. He, he could see like the way it would have worked, the way he would have seen it was that like um, I got for me like I got called as I was gone present was really struggling, overcame the faith crisis, and then really got to work with the elders corn and at this point it was like being a re a rebaptized member i was like it was, you know when baptized members are on fire and they're they're full of they're they're really buzzing and i was like that i kind of rejuvenated and i was like had a strong conviction and i really like put all my effort into elders corn and we just had some really good success i mean we saw some great people receive the melchizedek priesthood and we really kind of helped it was just a really good time i know the state president when he interviewed me was like impressed with you know what our elders corn would achieved and i had like a, don't know i had like two really good counselors and they were excellent and it wasn't that we were amazing people do you mean but it was just we were all really trying we were all working with the same thing we we're all spiritually in tune you know trying to be in tune and the lord really blessed our work and i think he saw that saw the work that had been done and i think in from his eye and he thought he sort of saw that i was helping direct it so i think he knew at that point he was assured that things were good and when we when we had our meeting and I shared my my dreams with him at that point I was like the first time I'd shared it with anyone my wife was there the state president was there and I think that kind of probably reassured him there at that point so I think we felt the yeah, spirit well, that's great and I, and I love you know stories like that because I think I, I worry sometimes that you know of course normal it's it's completely normal for a lifelong member to suddenly have some serious questions and doubts and sort of wrestle for a time with different information. But the the worst the worst result of all that could be that they are suddenly stigmatized or they walk around with a scarlet letter yeah. thinking, well, you know, he's he sort of had some questions in the past. So, you know, let's let's not uh, call him to anything too influential, right? And uh, but it's it's good to say it's a really good that, point that that's happening and and we have to have faith in that process that uh, those testimonies continue to grow and mold and, and develop, right? Yeah, no, I think it's a really valid point. I think there's people who probably do doubt that because they had a faith crisis that there will be that stigma and they'll be overlooked, not necessarily overlooked. So, then, I mean, I, I'm not a fan of like kind of being overlooked and like, you know, considered being a bishop or a state president or whatever, yeah. you know, or high council as a promotion, you know, it really isn't such a case. But like, yeah, like he wasn't like that at all. He was really understanding. And I think, you know, good as a church, we believe in change. We believe people can radically change. And we, we've all seen people radically change as people, you know. And I think it's something that it can be difficult. Sometimes we have that stigma where someone was renowned for being the world's worst home teacher and now they're amazing. But I think we have to practice what we preach, you know what I mean, and believe that like people can change and they do change and avoid stigmas remember that people you know that this was what this life is about isn't it becoming a better person and changing and we do yeah yeah that's great well uh, now you've been bishop for about a year now is that right yeah and uh I was joking with before that you should have it all figured out by now but uh, that's <laughs> definitely not the case right <laughs> no nice but you you definitely have some different focuses and things but how would you describe the first year what was it like uh you know, being called, uh, going yeah. from Elders Quorum to Bishop and then uh, starting starting to run the show. I think, interestingly, like, I think there was a case where like my previous bishop, like he was a really good guy and he'd been in the ward for nine years and that's, you know, the ward, he was very solid, you know, very steady and the ward really you know, grew as a result. And there's definitely a case where like the ward was so used to it. Not that I, I, I made sure for me, I made sure I didn't do introduce radical changes. So I realized that, you know, he being a bishop for nine years, there's a lot of th- reasons he did the things he did. And it, I made sure for the first few months to keep everything as it was, you know, and there's so reasons that after nine years they were doing stuff. He wasn't just living in the ward for nine years. He had been bishop for nine years. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's quite the, uh, yeah. the administration to take over. Yeah, exactly. And like, you don't be a bishop for nine years if you're bad at it. So <laughs> I felt there was a little bit, I was a little bit daunted, like kind of like taken over. But I have to give it to him, and I, and I think we'll agree. Sometimes, when a bishop gets replaced, there can be, and we've seen it from Tom Tom, where the previous bishop not necessarily gets bitter, but like, why is he doing that? I did like this. I mean, he's you know, and they kind of can start to kind of criticise a new bishop. You no, know, I think we've all seen it from time to time, and it, uh, that applies to you know various leadership positions in church. 
but he was excellent. And again, that's another thing I'll give him. He was only supportive. I think maybe after nine years, he was like fully relieved that it was, it was, <laughs> you know, it was finished, but he was only a gentleman about it. Like for the first, I'd say the first three months, the first two months, especially I had to call him, I had to speak to him about certain things and get his advice. And I never, ever felt that like he was what, you know, criticizing me or, there were whispers going around the world that like I was doing things differently to how he was and it was wrong, but he was really good. And I think that is a really important point that, you know, that we don't, you know, if there is a change, you used to be in a call and someone else takes over, you know, don't ever criticize, just allow that person to be that person, do the call and they've got to do. Yeah. I love that. There's such a, and that's one thing that sort of gets overlooked. You know, we, we've assumed these transitions just happen and the new guy leave or the old guy leaves, the new guy comes in and carries on. But there is sort of this, uh, this uh, dynamic that happens between the new and the old Bishop that you have to be aware of. And the older Bishop can, can be so encouraging when he's supportive. And even though he, he sees uh, that something's not going to work, you know, but it still encourages and, and sustains that leader and, and is an example for other members of that ward to sustain the new Bishop. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, no, like he was excellent at it. And he's still in the ward uh, there? Uh, yeah, like they do, typically they called the old previous bishops onto state, but he was called onto state your men's. Oh, great, great. Um, so, yeah. So, he's, he's still in the trenches with you. That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, like I think, and he made a conscious, I think he he was, he made quite a conscious effort to kind of, to be out, not necessarily to be out the ward because he couldn't stand me being there, but like, to be out of the ward to allow me to be the new bishop, like he visited, spent a lot of time visiting the units, the you know the different units to help support the other young men's yeah. program across the state, yeah. and I think in a positive way. Yeah. How would you describe just the the geographics of your ward and and the demographics? You know, is it a large ward? Is there a mix of different uh, different income levels or that type yeah. of thing? How would you describe all that? Yeah, we have about. An average, we're probably around eight market moments. So about eight people attend each week. So not small, but not large, somewhere kind of in between. Mm-hmm. Our demographic is towards the older side, actually. we have. It's, I guess it's a nice mix. It used to be the case, you know, 10 years ago, it was like a, a really old ward where like a lot of people were older. And we've had some young families move in. And so it's a nice mixture. But with like, I have like, I think what's been a blessing to me as a bishop is that I've got a core of older members. And when I say older, we're looking, you know, 60 plus, a real core of solid, hardcore members that are a blessing that they're not, they just make life a lot easier as Bishop. And our, de- our size of our ward in terms of like demographic, like the kind of geography, it's not that big. Actually, we've got quite a small kind of area. So it's quite, it's helpful in a sense. It's not the smallest, but you know, it's helpful with visiting teaching and that yeah. kind of those kind of programs. So you can get around uh, without, uh, packing a lunch and uh <laughs> and wondering yeah. if you'll be home uh, the same day right so yeah now we've talked about you, you uh you mentioned before we recorded that you've created a focus around a unique way of how you do ward ward council and i'd love for you to share that and break that down how that works and maybe others could could apply it in their ward if, it, if they see fit to uh it would make sense there yeah so for us you know everyone's different but we we have short, regular ward councils. So we technically, rather than having like a, a long meeting of about an hour and a half, we have short meetings that typically last 30 to 40 minutes at the most. We make an effort to never go over 40 minutes and to try to keep it to 30 minutes. And we keep it just key points. So, you know, if there's a baptism come and approach in what things we need to do, but like it's more of a focus on what people are we working with, you know, and just having short rather than kind of long-winded discussions, but short, brief points about, you know, the people and who they're working with, the Relief Society, who are you working with, you know, who are you, are you concerned about, what is your plan? And we have those, I'd say, like every other week, every once every other week, usually every other week or every other, every, once every three weeks. And we just have the short point, short meetings with the focus that afterwards that we've always got appointments to go to. It doesn't always happen for everyone, but there is like... Once people got in the swing of it, people realize that, you know, we have our meetings and it's expected that we go do visits because ultimately talking is great and it is important to have meetings and to plan and to organize. But the most important thing we can really do is to love people. And, you know, as they say, as Elder Uchtdorf said, you know, love is spelt T-I-M-E, time. And we can give people of our time and if it's just a visit, you know, on a regular basis. And we just found that we were getting more regular visits 
done and it was having a positive effect hmm. so so you say how often every other week you do word council yeah so the, recently it's been more once every three weeks but for the definitely for the first six months it was a probably every other week and then how i think a lot of leaders will be listening and saying I, i'd love to do short word councils but uh, people won't stop talking or you know it just gets out of my control so uh, what yeah. uh, what boundaries have you put out there so that that expectation is met so we make sure that like that you know there's certain discussions that can you know, for instance we don't have to have a long winded discussion in more council that the elders corn presidency can discuss amongst them you know that they, we can make a point and that if it doesn't need to be discussed in more council and it's something that the elders corn presidency can deal with that they deal with that we they discuss what they need to briefly then they go away and deal with it and it's more about we're quite you know we're quite key on making assignments recording the assignments and following up and that's been they're really key. So it's an eternal struggle for all members and leaders of the church. But everyone knows, again, like I'm, I'm quite firm when I get in the zone, like I'm quite firm and we'll not necessarily cut people off, but um, there's a sense of urgency that, okay, what's the point? Who, you know, who you meet in, what's your plan? And that we keep it brief, not long winded. And do you feel like that's uh, like that, that sense of urgency is that, you come from just from your personality and people sort of uh, feel that as you're running the meeting or, is there something more to that that even your counselors are able to keep that sense of urgency if, if you're not there? I'd probably say, if I'm being honest, that's kind of my personality mostly. But typically we found that when when I'm not there, like, you know, if the bishop's not there, I'm not saying like the bishop's the be all and end all, you know, I'm telling you now, you know, it's definitely not. I'm definitely not. But it, when you haven't got the bishop there, it's hard. The meetings aren't quite the same. So it's, you know, we always usually are, you know, if we're going to have a meeting, I'm, I'm pretty certain I'll be there. And I'd say it's like I said, the sense of urgency probably comes that they've, after a while, I've come to expect that there's a sense of urgency because we want to not kind of we want to cut through, make the key points, make the key assignments, and we want to get out and do the important, most important part, which is the visits. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where, the, you know, with a bit of time, it took a few months, but we got there. Yeah. Yeah. And so it took some time for, because obviously it came from a, you know, with a new bishop coming in, they had a different approach toward council, I would imagine for, not that it was a bad one, but just a different one. And yeah. you sort of had to, you know, show your style and, and how you wanted to run things and that took some time. Yeah, and every t- exactly. And it's not that we always have those meetings, but I'd say, you know, once every few months, we do have the long meeting where you have to, where we, you know, where we'll sit and it won't be a meeting where we know, we say, look, it's going to be a long meeting. We're going to discuss quite a few points new to and we'll have the proper long meeting where we can, take time and people can you know embellish on their points yeah so that is needed you know that is needed at times definitely anything else as far as the do you have a do you live and die by an agenda does that also help you keep keep things moving yeah and how does that work like, How's yeah that so like, I, like i've got a really like um clark and he's cool like and he will like he's pretty he's just good at what he does and he'll call me at least a couple of days before or he said, look, I don't care how you send it to me, whether we do it over the phone or you text me or email me, just you know, get your points over and he'll print off an agenda and have it set. So I, I know there's an agenda and that does help having like, we know exactly, rather than turn up and what we're going to talk about, I know the key point questions I'm going to ask the, you know, the ward council on the certain assignments. We always follow up with assignments from the previous weeks and that, you know, he's really good at that and that is really effective. Nice. So you've communicated with him pretty directly that you expect an agenda and and this is your clerk you said yeah so in, before i'll just have like get my phone out i've made a few points the day before that that day just the key point that questions and points i want to raise but look, no he's just hot on it that's something unfortunate i've got someone who's hot on that and he's really good like that nice nice and that's a you know such a crucial step that i know i learned that to really communicate that to your clerk and and uh not just assume oh they're the clerk so they'll know to do that and then you know, it doesn't happen. And then you just become a meeting that never has an agenda, but really, you know, giving them that, that opportunity to step up to the plate and, uh, and provide that, uh, agenda. Yeah. And that's going to help you get through that. Meeting. He's, yeah, he's very good as well. He like, he record the notes as well. So it isn't the case that what well, I think we're all guilty of have been at times is where we've, we've talked and we've, no one's really kept notes or they're not really followed up on. But like I make a key point, just like he'll keep the notes really well. And so I know next agenda, I don't even have to ask. He'll give me a print off of the meets, the notes from the previous meeting, 
And so I know I look at the assignments and like, right, first thing, you know, the first 10 minutes, we say, right, so and so, high priest, group leader, how did it go with this assignment from two weeks ago? And we go that way. So that's just been massively beneficial. How do you approach, do you have, you know, one thing that I always struggle with is, you know, it's one thing to have an agenda, but then, you know, an auxiliary leader brings up a, something else that's not on the agenda that they feel like it just needs, I just need to talk about this or yeah. discuss it. Uh, have you, how do you gauge that and, and control that? I think within the meeting, I get, you get a sense if it's something that is, you know, there's some things that they might just pop up that we didn't want to expect and that you do have to discuss and it is an important matter. And, you know, there are times, like I said, we usually try and keep it at 30 minutes, but I've got that, fle- we have that flexibility of maybe an extra 10 minutes where we, with those kind of things pop up, which they do, I'd say most weeks. But I think as well, if there's one thing I've massively learned because I was poor at it in this year is that communication and doing the PPIs. Mm. If I wish someone had really expressed how important they are and just kind of, so we have this world council. Sometimes you get a feeling with it, something that we need to discuss the world council or really I can have a PPI of the release site presidency and it'd be better for us to discuss it there yeah. and where I can diverge stuff to them. Nice. It, to those PPI meetings. Yeah, I definitely want to come back to that. So you're saying that as you are faithful in holding PPIs that, that minimize some of those random comments. Because uh, I think a lot of wards, the auxiliary leader feels like ward council is the only time they really have the bishop's ear, right? Yeah. And don't get me wrong, like, I've been guilty of that where like and it was a learning curve for me that like having the PPIs was good and making the time for them because just that kind of feeling of kind of being connected and and you might think it's something, a simple point you want to mention them, but yeah, it's for them to know that it just kind of have that communication consistent communication is really vital because i've had it where like i haven't had a ppr i've left you know i had a ppr young men's president for several months and now he's really struggling i'm like why haven't i been on top of this already yeah i like that and you know we'll come back to ppis in a second but i want to ask you as far as you said visits so we've talked about ward council and then you go do visits. Do you do this as yeah. um, you know your clerk or secretary is handing out names for them to go visit? What's the preparation look like in order to go from a formal meeting to out to visit? So that usually is down to them. So like my advice is normally being like, can I, I was home teach somebody who's on your home teaching list or somebody you know you're concerned about in your auxiliary, you know, relief site is concerned about a certain sister. So visit, you know, so I encourage them to visit the people they're concerned about. And use pre not de- now. I don't maybe back in the day it worked a treat, but nowadays turning up just isn't effective ninety percent of the time. And there's certain families where it's the only way, but most people, you know, it's definitely best to organise an appointment so that straight after, you know, you know, you've got a uh, meeting's going to end about seven thirty ish, and you've got an appointment about eight o'clock. Yeah, and that's the way that like, we encourage it. So all your visits are are set before the the ward council even starts. Typically, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And then do you go out, uh, you know, so because in, in the ward council, does the, like the primary president go with the young women's president or do you go as companions? Yeah, so we leave that to them. But typically the, the Relief Society presidency, you know, will go with each other or you mean like or one or two of them might arrange. So because sometimes we'll have like, say they've got an appointment, you know, I don't mind them. They're going to bring their first council or second council. You know, we're open to that. And some people have other wards and leaders might be, oh, you have more than just a presence. And for our ward, no, I'd, I'm happy for that to happen. And sometimes you're right. Sometimes it's the young women's president who goes out with, you know, the prime president. But typically they'll bring one that you know someone to go visit with. Nice. So they've already thought that through. And and so do you have presidency members? You know, more than one presidency member sitting in on ward council, or they're just waiting outside? Or typically we allowed them in. Like I'll give you. Funny enough, we don't. We didn't just allow. So we had an issue a few months back where. We were, obviously, in ward council, you can sometimes discuss private matters to a point. With ward council, you've got people, you know, leaders that generally are trustworthy and that is confidential stuff that sometimes you talk about. And some, you know, there was what happened. Someone had gone away and talked and shared openly with other people things from the meeting that they shouldn't have. And when you know, quickly you can identify the you know where this issue was, and it just became a case of that. I spoke to the primary president that time and said, please, you know. From now on, just make sure that that sister isn't attend the meeting. So if I know like a counselor is going to be there, you know, I would just make sure it's one that we know we can trust. Gotcha. Yeah, you just have to be uh, sensitive with what what you discuss and go from there. Yeah. Nice. 
Great. Anything else with visits uh, that dynamic? I think it's intriguing, a different idea and an effective idea. It sounds like anything else that, that we haven't hit on that would be important to clarify if, if others are wanting to try this. Not necessarily about the visits, but the PPIs are something I was going to mention. I don't know if you want to talk about them now. Or... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so let's talk about your PPIs. Is this something, how are they structured? How do you set them up? Yeah. And once you're in that, those PPIs, what's the agenda look like? So for me, for the PPI is like our first, the first thing I'll do, like, is like, it's kind of, it's to see how they are as a person. So we can, you know, we could go straight, we could jump straight into, you know, release site or whatever, but I always find the thing I'll do, and it's like a typical question. I'll say, like, how are you? And then I'll stop. And before I even start, I say, and when I say, how are you doing? I don't mean just give me the kind of surface answer, but I said, how are you really doing? And that's one for me, that's one thing that's helped break some barriers and where people have, where they probably wouldn't have, have kind of opened up about something that's going on in their personal life or things they are generally worried about. And that's, for me, it's always been a great way to start. Yeah. And then what are you talking about next? You, and, and that, I guess, is five minutes or so? I think they're, they're very, like, some, like, my, my prime pregnancy, like, they're just solid. Like, so, like, it's not often, like, she's really, in, she's the type of personality that our meetings won't be that long. She runs it, like, operates it really well. And you typically, like, it varies from person to person. Some people are more kind of chatting issues, but normally my PPIs are primarily aren't long. And they're not necessarily as scheduled as, I'm not, I'd say where I probably should be better is scheduling them and having like a more of a planned, planned PPIs in place where normally it would be a case of, I'll arrange one maybe like the Sunday before, say, hey, can we meet this week sometime and have like five minutes or can we meet after church? Yeah. You don't have like a, every second Sunday is really society present. Nothing scheduled like that, though. You say you may no. it wouldn't be a bad idea, but you just sort of handle it uh, every month or so. You uh, yeah. You reach out to them or they reach out to you and and you meet. Yeah. So for instance, Relief Society, we've had to meet regularly recently because there's a number of you know, kind of issues going on with uh, certain sis and they've got certain things. They just want to, more case of just saying, look, this is what we think. This is the issue we've got. This is what we're thinking of doing. Are you okay? We're just kind of like just kind of sounding things off kind of approval in a sense. Awesome. And, but I mind they're not normal, unless I've got like, sometimes I've got a burning, you know, thing that I need to discuss with them, but usually it's kind of, I don't have a planned agenda. It's just kind of see how they are personally and then see how their organization is doing any issues that we want to discuss. Awesome. Well, uh, anything else with PPIs that, uh, that's important for us to understand, uh, to kind of get a sense of how you approach them. No, I feel like that's sorted for me. Okay. <laughs> And I know it's getting late there. Uh, it's just, <laughs> but uh, I think this has been great. Well, Dan, I appreciated you, uh, you know, taking the time out of your busy schedule. Obviously, it's it's late there, and uh, I'm I'm gonna go get uh, ready for dinner as you get ready for bed. But uh, <laughs> I appreciate you giving some time here to discuss some of these principles and really, you know, just your journey of uh, through a, a faith transition, as I like to call it, rather than a faith crisis. Because the more we talk about it, especially those, you know, current bishops that have, have experienced some of these things, it's important that we bring some dialogue to that and destigmatize uh, what it is to doubt. You know, we, we, I think on the surface or on paper, we want to say that, but to hear a real story is, is sure is encouraging and helpful. So I, I applaud you in your journey and, and uh, regardless of where you ended up, you know, uh, whether in the bishop's desk or, or outside the church, you know, Nonetheless, your journey's validated and and uh, a good one for sure. As you have now, you're a year uh, into serving as as bishop. Before that, as elders court president, as you look back on your time being a leader and serving and leading, how's it made you better disciple or follower of Jesus Christ? That's a great question. I think for me, it's made me less judgeful and critical. I think I was definitely guilty of. When people left the church before I had my faith crisis, when people left or struggled, like I was quite critical of them, and you know I wasn't, and I just kind of was quite harsh on them. When now, like I kind of felt, I know how they felt, I know how real, I can understand how they got there and how they made the decision that it, for them they no longer, you know, wanted to do church and that was no longer their choice. And for me, I think it's just kind of that. Don't yeah, you know, not necessarily to have that you know, be harsh and criticize them or tell. And for me, definitely not to, but to be understand and listen to them. I think that's the that's key term here. People have got issues. Don't go in. You know, seek first, understand, then to be understood. Yeah. That is such a key principle. You know, 
you sometimes we go in with our preconceptions what they're we know what these problem we've heard what the problem is this is what the, I reckon the solution would be but really when you hear it it's just a completely different ball game and to always just listen A big thank you to Dan Conway for allowing me to interview him. It's always encouraging to hear different accents on the Leading LDS podcast. If you know an international leader or a fantastic, prolific leader, please reach out to us at leadinglds.org slash contact and uh, share with us who we should interview. And that list is getting longer and longer, and we're trying to focus more on the sister leaders to uh, balance out the scale of of, uh, interviews that we have on Leading LDS to get different perspectives and uh, have more diversity there. But uh, if you have a, a, someone you'd recommend, I'd love to hear from you, reach out. doesn't necessarily guarantee what, that we will for sure be able to arrange an interview, but uh, we'll definitely consider it. Also, if you haven't done so yet, be sure to head on over to leadinglds.org and check out the two free leadership trainings that are available there. One is our recent leadership webinar, and the other is how to hold a one-hour presidency meeting. These trainings will definitely improve your leadership efficiency and also minimize the time meetings take. Everybody needs help there, am I right? So remember, be a leader and not a calling. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.